Where do you see God at work? Uh, think about your life, uh, what you and your friends and family are going through at the moment. Where do you think God's at work in those things? I think some of us have a gut instinct that God's at work in the big things, in things like politics or war and peace, in the big movements of history. Some of us have the intuition in our personal lives, when things are going well, that's where we think God's at work. So if you get a promotion or you sell the house or buy a home at a good price, if a conflict gets resolved, or maybe when we're being honest, when there's been a conflict but I win, uh, maybe if you get a good mark at school or good news from a doctor, we might think that's where God's at work. But our gut instinct is also often to think that maybe God's not at work, maybe God's taken his hand off the wheel when things aren't going well, when we're struggling or suffering. Where do you look to see God at work today? To see God at work in your life? Last week we listened to what God says at the start of Micah 4, and in those verses we've got an amazing picture a vision of the world turned right way up by God, where the nations stream into God's presence and to God's king, a future of peace and provision. And we saw how these hopes are centred and fulfilled in Jesus, as people from all around the world come to Jesus and trust in him. We start to get a taste of God's peace and provision. And ultimately, we look forward to the fullness of this in the new creation, in the the new heavenly Jerusalem. Now, that might be God's big plan, but what about now? Where do we see God at work now? This is a question we're asking. It's also a question God's people were asking 2,700 years ago in the time of of Micah. Uh, Plenty of people back then weren't listening to God's word through Micah, but some were, and they would have been encouraged by God's future. But what about now? Well, Micah 4.9 brings us crashing back to the present. And the present is not pretty. In fact, it's a time of pain. Uh, Let's listen from verse 9, Micah 4.9. Why do you now cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your ruler perished? That pain seizes you like that of a woman in labour. Writhe in agony, daughter Zion, like a woman in labour, for now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. God's future is glorious, but what's life like now for God's people in Micah's now. It's pain. And God uses a graphic picture of pain. This is 11 out of 10 on the pain scale, the pain of labour, of birth. That's the pain. But what's the, the concrete cause of the pain? It's not a baby being born, but exile. 
Uh, Micah spoke more than a hundred years before it would happen, but God says his people are going to be ripped away from their homes and taken as captives to Babylon. There's present pain. But God is kind. He almost doesn't take a breath after saying they'll be exiled to Babylon. But And then he says, but I'll rescue you. This present pain isn't the end of the story. But the question they must have been thinking is, well, is God going to be at work through this pain? Is the pain of exile God at work or is God taking his hand off the wheel and he'll just grab on a little bit later down the track and kind of get things back where they're meant to be? Well, Mike has already answered the question. In the first three chapters, we've heard Assyria and Babylon are coming as punishment for sin. But there's another reason for what's about to happen as well. And this can be a little bit tricky. The reason is for God to judge not only his people, we've already heard about that, but he's actually doing this so that he'll judge the nations as well. So have a listen from verse 11, which brings us back again to the present, to Micah's present. Verse 11, but now... Many nations are gathered against you. They say, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them like sheaths to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, daughter Zion, for I will give you horns of iron. I'll give you hooves of bronze and you will break the the nation to pieces, many nations. You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. Uh, What's going on in Micah's present? Well, the nations, Assyria or Babylon, their armies are gathered to invade Israel or Judah and they're drooling at the prospect. They can't wait to get in and destroy Jerusalem and boast about it. They can't wait to humiliate Israel's leader. Uh, They want to boast about how their army is better. But more than that, this isn't just about the military because what's important about Jerusalem It's the place of God's king and God's presence, the palace and the temple. And so gloating over Jerusalem, they're they're saying, we're stronger than God's king. Our God is better than Israel's God. Now, from reading the first three chapters of Micah, we know why the nations are going to destroy Jerusalem. It's not because they're stronger. It's not because their God is more powerful. It's because the true and living God is at work judging his sinful people. And this is where, is it a paradox? Is it a tension? I'm not sure the right word. But what's going on here is as the nations invade and destroy, they are both at the same time, they are both sinning against God even while they are bringing God's punishment. They are sinning against God even whilst they are the agents of God's judgment. And this causes us to scratch our heads. It's, It's a bit confusing. How do those two things mesh? But we come across this quite often in the Bible. In fact, we see it at the cross. 
In Acts 2, when Peter preaches about uh, the crucifixion of Jesus, this is after the Spirit has been poured out, he says, Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Why was Jesus nailed to the cross? Well, it's because sinful people hate God and want to kill God the Son. And it's also because it was God's plan and purpose from eternity past. It's the same kind of thing with the nations in Micah 4. Why are they drooling at the prospect of gloating over Jerusalem? It's because they are arrogant and want to boast about their own strength. And it's also because it's God's plan and purpose. And there is a tension here. Now, in all of this, uh, God is not the author of sin. Sinners are going to sin of their own will and desire. And God is going to God. He is sovereign over all. And that's the tension. And this raises a deep question And let's keep wrestling over it, over morning tea and in Bible studies. But despite this being quite a head-scratching tension, it is good news for our hearts. It tells us God is always at work. When we think things are going bad and when we think things are going well, God is always God. He never lets go. But often God works in ways we don't expect, in places we're not looking. And that's the promise God goes on to make in Micah 5. God says, after the humiliation, he will raise up a king to lead his people. Verse 2. So this is Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labour bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. A big focus in this section of Micah has been Israel's leaders. It's been focused on Mount Zion, Jerusalem, God's king and God's presence. But here, Micah tells us to look a little bit south to a little overlooked village. He says, don't think God's mainly at work with the elites. Don't think his plans centre around power and things we find impressive. God's hope, God's answer to his people's needs is going to come from an overlooked town. Now, on some level, this shouldn't have surprised anyone that God would raise up a ruler from Bethlehem. He's done it once before. David, who is the great king of Israel, he was from Bethlehem. But even though Bethlehem was his hometown, he, that's not where he put his throne. He, he conquered Jerusalem and that's where he put his throne. And so since that time, the focus of God's kingship has been on Jerusalem. 
God's promise is once again he's going to raise up a shepherd like David, someone from humble beginnings. But not only humble, but also ancient beginnings, uh, ancient origins. Uh, This must mean that the ruler is from David's line. By that time, that was the ancient kings of Israel. But his origins being from old is suggestive language. It hints that there's something more going on with this ruler. It hints that maybe he might be divine. But even though God's plans start humbly in this unexpected little village, his plans for the ruler doesn't stay small. Yes, don't despise the day of small things, but God's plan is for the world to know, to honour, to worship his name. And God's plan is for him to defeat his enemies. Verse 5, and he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. We will raise up against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders, who will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our land and march across our borders. Now, this is a bit tricky. What event? When is this talking about? Because in Micah 5.3 it says the ruler from Bethlehem won't be born until after the time of suffering. This king won't come until after the Assyrian and Babylonian conquest. That's what verse 3 says. And then verse 5 says he's going to bring peace when the Assyrians invade. And that, that didn't happen. Micah lived through the Assyrian invasion and there was no peace, at least for the northern kingdom. There wasn't seven or eight shepherds. There wasn't a fullness, I think that's what those numbers mean, a fullness of godly leaders who rose up to lead God's people to victory. What does the promise of verses 5 and 6 mean? I take it Micah's using picture language. He's using the name Assyria as a code word. For all of God's enemies. He's saying, when the shepherd from Bethlehem comes, he will protect God's people from all of their enemies, even ones as big and scary as Assyria and Nimrod. And he'll protect them in two ways. Some of the enemies will become friends and other enemies will be defeated. Uh, Verses 7 to 9 pick up this double approach. Verse 7, the remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or depend on man. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations in the midst of many people, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can rescue. Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies, and all your foes will be destroyed." The remnant of Jacob, do you hear how both those verses began exactly the same way? It's talking about the people of God, those who trust and follow the shepherd from Bethlehem. And you see the people of God are spread throughout the world, throughout the nations. It's the same in both verses. But there's two different impacts they have. In verse 7, they're like the Jew. They bring life and refreshment. But in verse 8, they're like a lion. They bring judgment and destruction. 
For 700 years, God's people were holding on to this promise and looking and waiting for a ruler to come to Bethlehem to lead them that they might see blessing in the world, but also God's judgment over their enemies. For 700 years, they would wait until a star rose and got the attention of Magi from the east, maybe even from the land of Assyria or Nimrod. And they come to Jerusalem looking for a newborn king. But there's no future king to be found in Jerusalem. But those who remembered Micah's words, when they're asked where God's promised king, the Messiah, would be born, they ask, they answer, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written, and then they quote Micah 5 2. And these visitors from the nations, they go to Bethlehem, find the child, bow down and worship him. Even as a child, the dew of God's blessing is beginning to fall on the nations. Where is God at work? Of course he's working in the big things of world history. But let's not overlook the small and humble ways. God often uses the small and uh, lowly and despised things for his great purposes, so that, as 1 Corinthians says, no one may boast before him. God uses the little things in his plans and purposes. So as Micah speaks, we've heard two ways God was at work. He's at work even through present pain, which may be discipline and judgment, but also preparing perpetrators for judgment. He's also at work in humble and small ways, ways we might naturally look for. The final thing God says about where he is at work is that he's at work purifying his people. God's goal is to remove, to destroy things that separate his people from him. Verse 10, in that day declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down all your strongholds. I will destroy your witchcraft and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your idols and your sacred stones from among you. You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot from among you your Asherah poles when I demolish your cities. I will take vengeance in anger and wrath on the nations that have not obeyed me. The best way to deal with temptation is to get rid of it. Jesus says, cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. Of course, we can never cut off enough. We can never totally remove temptation, which is why we need God's spirit to give us a new heart. But this is where God is at work. God's saying on that day, on the day the shepherd from Bethlehem comes, he's going to remove evil, destroying the things that lead his people away from him. He's going to remove the things we put false confidence in, military might, horses and chariots, fortresses and city, uh, false gods and spirituality, idols and witchcraft. That's what God says he's going to remove. 
And who did he say he's going to do this to? Well, verse 15 says he'll do it to the nations, which normally when you read the word nations in the Old Testament, it means the pagan nations, everyone who's not Israel, except in this context, well, actually God's people were guilty of trusting in chariots and horses. They were guilty of worshipping idols and looking at to magic and spells for protection. So verse 15 is ominous. God is lumping together Israel and the nations. He's saying, if you're going to live like the nations, you're going to be like them, aren't you? But there is a double edge to this word, destroy. I will destroy the chariots. I will destroy the idols. Because yes, it does mean the destruction of judgment. But it also means purifying them destroying the things from within them that lead them away from God so that they can follow God wholeheartedly. That's what God promises he will do on that last day. Sorry, on that day, which is those last days in the day of the ruler of Bethlehem. God's message to his people in Micah's day was about this great future. Uh, the future when his ruler would come from an unexpected and humble place, the future when the nations would be given life and refreshment and when God's enemies and sin in God's people would be destroyed. And God's message was also that he was at work now, even in pain and small things. They didn't have to wait for God to be at work. They could see God at work now. Uh, We live in a time of fulfilment. Uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We live in the days Micah spoke about. But we also struggle to see God at work. And that's because God's promises are now for us in Jesus, but they're also not yet. They're now, but not yet. Because we are still waiting for the return of Jesus when he'll make everything new. And so we live in a time when both verses 7 and 8 of chapter 5 are true. Those verses say the remnant of Jacob, God's people, that's us if we're trusting in Jesus, we're both like Jew and like a lion among the nations. When Paul was reflecting on his ministry, he wrote to the Corinthians that as he travelled around telling people about Jesus, for some the message of Jesus was like the Jew, and for others it's a lion. He doesn't use the language of Jew and lion, he uses a different picture, but his point is the same. Have a listen to what he wrote in 2 Corinthians. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings light, brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. Same message, two very different responses. Sometimes we think if there were a revival, if lots of people are becoming Christians, then we know God's at work. And yes, that's true. The only way anyone receives the gospel and moves from spiritual death to spiritual life, the only way is because God does a miracle. 
But 2 Corinthians shifts our view just slightly and says, yes, God is at work when the gospel is the aroma of life, but he's also at work when the gospel is rejected as the stench of death. God is at work. He's at work when people hear the gospel and believe, but he's also at work when you start talking to someone about Jesus and they say they don't want to hear. He's at work when you invite someone to come to Christianity Explored or read the Bible with you and they say no. Sometimes giving life, sometimes confirming judgments. God is also at work in our suffering. Sometimes we think if we're following Jesus, life should be easy. And then when life gets difficult, which it always does, we think, oh, well, maybe God's not in this. But the world hated Jesus and he prepared his followers for the same thing. Because through hard times, God is preparing his people for glory. A little bit later in the same letter to the believers in Corinth, it says, after Paul outlines a whole lot of suffering he's going through, he says, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly. We are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. In the light of eternity, we can say our troubles are light and momentary. Now that's not to diminish the difficulties we go through. This doesn't mean that pain and suffering isn't extraordinarily real and a heavy burden and that we need God and his people to support and comfort us. Paul's not saying, God's not saying to to overlook pain and struggle, but it is saying that the bigness of God's glory should be in our view. It is saying, lift our eyes that God is at work in both our struggles and our success. And lastly, God is at work making his people holy, removing our false loves, our arrogance and pride, quite often painfully as our false loves fail us, as we are humbled and brought low, but God uses those things to make us holy. Where is God at work? Yes, he's at work in the big things. He was at work in the first coming of Jesus and he's at work as we head to the time when Jesus will return and make all things new. But he is, just like with Israel 700 years before Jesus, God is also at work in the small things, in difficult things and in good things that happen in our lives. And he uses these things as judgment and to make us holy and to grow his kingdom. So let's pray, uh, let's ask God to be helping us to see this truth and also to be, let's take our pain and our struggle to him. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you because you're always at work. You're at work in the big contours of history and you're just as much at work in the wrinkles in our lives. Please help us trust you 
to trust your plan, to see the gospel grow and the Lord Jesus glorified throughout the earth. And also to trust you when things are going hard. I thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he took on our humanity and he did that in humility and that he was born, lived, died and rose again to save us from our great enemy of sin and death. Please be changing us. Destroy in us the things that lead us away from you. Make us more like Jesus, we pray. Amen.